0: Hey, Annie, doing well. Uh, Great to see you. Um, So I I think this is a really interesting topic because uh, while the Biden administration's foreign policy is still in formation, so to speak, it's already clear that Iran is going to be one of those topics where the new administration's approach differs pretty significantly from the approach taken by the last administration. Um, The Trump administration's approach, uh, colloquially known as maximum pressure, uh, has since the middle of 2018, when President Trump uh, withdrew from withdrew America from the uh, Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, was really focused on uh, amplifying and expanding political and economic pressure on the Iranian regime. Uh, the, the dividends of that, I think, uh, objectively uh, are seen in, in the state of the Iranian economy uh, in uh, the amount of available funds that Iran has uh, to fuel its regional activities and uh, the sort of isolation uh, that Iran is experiencing internationally at the moment. But the Biden administration uh, has made it very clear already that it's planning a substantially different tack, uh, less conflictual relationship with Iran. Um, and uh, it wants to reengage. And, and this is something that, uh, that President Biden talked about when he was still on the campaign trail about the, the need for a return to the negotiating framework uh, that was implemented when he was vice president uh, by the Obama administration. And essentially to use that the product of that negotiations of those negotiations um the what's known as the joint comprehensive plan of action as the jumping off point for a new round of talks and engagement with the iranian regime um and and here i think it's uh, useful to point out um that uh the trump approach and, and the biden approach really aren't that different in terms of their desired outcomes. Uh, When President Trump applied maximum pressure, the goal wasn't to change the regime in Tehran. The goal was to apply enough pressure that the Iranian regime would come back to the negotiating table and negotiate a better deal, uh, as he saw it, um, in terms of Iranian regional influence, in terms of uh, Iranian sponsorship of terrorism, a, a deal that encompassed all of those things, and therefore better served American interests. Um, the Biden administration uh, has uh, talked a lot about something very similar, talked about re-engaging with Iran, sort of dialing down the temperature um, and uh, sort of coming up with a sort of a new uh, durable framework for talks. Um, the real uh, sort of differences I think here are twofold. Uh, one is timing and the other is leverage. Um, on the timing front, uh, the real question is, who goes first in this attempt to re-engage because it's clear that the Iranian regime um, is struggling economically. And despite what it says publicly, it wants to re-engage uh, with the United States and it's planning to do so with the Biden administration. But uh, Iranian officials have said that there are uh, prerequisites, that there are things that the Biden administration uh, needs to do preemptively to prove its bona fides in order to bring Tehran back to the negotiating table. On the other hand, uh, folks like National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan have said that Iran has to return to compliance with the uh, 2015 nuclear deal first, and then the United States would engage in new talks, right? So it's a sort of a he said, she said scenario where uh, the country that goes first, uh, you know, the outcome is very different depending on who goes first and, and who blinks first. Uh, the second uh, big, thing to think about and and big thing uh, for the Biden administration to consider is the question of leverage. Uh, Objectively, um, the maximum pressure policy of the Trump administration has really imparted a lot of leverage uh, in political and economic terms to the United States. And that's leverage that the Biden administration can use in order to pressure Iran uh, to uh, hammer out a a broader deal, uh, as it has said. Um, but it's not necessarily clear that that leverage is going to be used. Uh, There's people in the Biden camp, advisors in the Biden camp that have talked already about the fact that the US needs to give preemptive concessions to Iran in order to prove its bona fides, in in order to uh, essentially apologize for uh, the pressure applied by uh, President Biden's predecessor. Um, and uh, if that's the case, if that's the tack that we take, we'll see a lot of preemptive lifting of sanctions, a lot of preemptive economic re-engagement with Iran that will remove a significant amount of the leverage that was created by the Trump administration's maximum pressure policy uh, on the Islamic Republic. Uh, and, and by doing that, we'll, we'll really reduce our ability to shape Iranian behavior. Uh, and uh, narrow the sort of the potential outcome of those negotiations. Okay, so I'll stop there. Um, I'll look at, uh, let me, give me one second to look at the questions and then I'll answer them. That's a good question. Um, No, I I think it's it's useful to point out that uh, Biden administration officials have indeed talked about uh, a longer and stronger deal, but what that actually means is that the the new deal that the Biden team plans to negotiate is going to need to include more stuff in it. Um, and, and here, you know, there, there's there's it's useful to point out that the Trump administration, in deciding to abrogate the 2015 nuclear deal, uh, effectively cited um, three shortfalls in the agreement. That there essentially three what it saw as three fatal shortfalls. The first was that the agreement didn't cover enough stuff. Um, There were things like ballistic missiles, uh, which are obviously a a sort of a crucial delivery system that um, uh, would be used in any conceivable scenario by Iran to deliver a nuclear payload that were simply taken out of the scope of work um, by uh, the Obama administration's negotiators because uh, they saw it as a deal breaker for coming to terms uh, with the Islamic Republic back in 2014-2015, uh, um, so the uh, sort of a, a stronger deal would need to include provisions like that. Uh, another shortfall that the Trump administration focused on was duration, um, and you know here it's it's important to point out that the JCPOA is not indefinite; it has a sunset clause, and, and a lot of its provisions have already begun to fall by the wayside. Right back in October, the uh, UN arms embargo. Uh, expo, which was uh, part of the, hammered out as part of the JCPOA wa- already expired. Um, so we are already in the downward slope in terms of chronology for the deal. Um, if the deal is re-embraced by the Biden administration uh, and, and we sort of simply go back to the confines of the 2015 nuclear deal, we're going to re-enter an agreement that effectively is gonna expire in the last year of President Biden's first term. And that probably isn't an outcome that the new White House wants. Um, And so we're gonna need to focus on extension, uh, extension of the deal, extension of its provisions and its restrictions, um, that the restrictions that it imposes on Iran. And the third uh, shortfall that the Trump administration focused on was that the agreement was insufficient in scope, that it didn't really uh, allow us to see enough stuff uh, with regard to Um, the Iranian nuclear complex. uh, It didn't give us uh, invasive enough inspections. Um, It didn't allow us to really have uh, adequate eyes on Iran's nuclear program. That's going to be uh, a major issue also. uh, And that's something that uh, the Biden administration has focused on in terms of uh, sort of uh, the the parameters that it would need in order to be comfortable re-engaging with Iran. So all of those things, uh, longer uh, a longer duration for the new deal, uh, encompassing more uh, more of Iran's programs like Iran's ballistic missile program and a more invasive inspections regime. I, I think that's gonna really be uh, sort of the bread and butter of what a longer and stronger deal looks like. Okay, question two. So that's a great question. Um, I, I think the, um, the question of Iran's proxy network, uh, what the US military calls the ITN, the Iranian threat networks around the Middle East is really a crucial one. Um, Qasem Soleimani, uh, was, his killing was so catalytic and so transformative precisely because he was the connective tissue that connected the Iranian regime with all of these assorted proxy groups, whether it's uh, Hezbollah in Lebanon or Shiite militias in Iraq or the Houthi rebels in Yemen uh, he was the public face of the Iranian regime that interfaced with all of these different sub-state actors, and so his killing was a tremendous blow, at least in the near term, to the vibrancy of that threat network uh, that Iran has succeeded in building over the last quarter century. Um, and the uh, and we saw this because uh, his successor, uh, the um, uh, the deputy commander of Iran's, uh, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, uh, Quds Force, uh, a man by the name of Ismail Ghani, uh, who took over after Soleimani was killed, uh, simply didn't have his gravitas, didn't have his stature, um, was, wasn't really a Middle East guy, he was a South Asia guy, he had, folk, he had sort of cut his teeth on Afghanistan, Um, And so there was really a a moment of inflection uh, after the killing of Soleimani, where it was clear that the Iranian threat network was not as robust and not as uh, powerful um, as it had been under Soleimani. But that's not an indefinite proposition, which was why it was so important for the Trump administration to follow up on Soleimani's killing and really spend significant time and effort to reduce the threat posed by Uh, the Iranian threat network by by these constituent groups. That's really something that um, the Trump administration didn't focus on. Uh, The Soleimani killing was seen as sort of a one and done enterprise. And frankly, I think that was a mistake because what we're seeing now is that the Iranian threat network, uh, even under Ghani's leadership, um, is still around. It's still extant in the Middle East and beyond. Uh, It's still a significant threat to American allies and American interests in the Middle East, in North Africa, Um, and it's as vibrant as ever. In fact, if anything, it's uh, a bit more decentralized. It doesn't look quite uh, as closely to Tehran for instruction and guidance and support, and that makes them uh, a bit more like free agents, these different groups, and uh, it potentially makes them even more dangerous. So that is question two. All right, question three. Um, the the Pompeo speech, uh, I, I think, was an important one. A speech he gave um, in mid-January on the uh, outlining the connections between Iran and al-Qaeda, frankly, was intended to do two things. First of all, it was intended to map out, uh, in a public fashion, uh, intelligence that the administration had gathered about these at least tactical connections between the Islamic Republic on the one hand and the Al Qaeda network on the other, um, because there is this conventional wisdom that has permeated uh, Middle East studies and counterterrorism studies for the last two decades that uh, Shiite and Sunni radicals simply cannot and do not cooperate. Um, that that you know historically that's proved that's been uh, pretty definitively proven to be untrue. And Exhibit A has to be the Con- connectivity between Sunni Al Qaeda and Shiite actors like Iran and uh, Iranian proxy Hezbollah in Lebanon, um, where it's clear that they can and do cooperate. And, and so so on, on, a, on a policy level, um, the, uh, the Pompeo speech was, I think, a really good reminder that uh, the alliances uh, are very fluid uh, in this regard, that, you know, these uh, radicals are not hermetically walled off from one another, they do in fact cooperate and that the enemy of my enemy uh, maybe is not my friend, but is at least my ally of convenience. Um, but there's also a, uh, I think a political uh, angle uh, to what Pompeo did. Uh, the speech came right at the tail end of the Trump administration. And so it was essentially putting down a marker uh, for something that the next administration would have to consider. Um, and uh, it's not at all clear uh, as of right now whether the Biden administration is going to be prepared to, um, to focus heavily on um, uh, Iranian regional activity, Iranian support for terrorism. Um, it's worth noting that the, uh, the Obama administration in its day really defined the problem down to just Iran's nuclear program and and focused solely on that. It didn't really focus on Iranian support for terrorism, didn't really focus on uh, Iranian efforts to destabilize the Middle East. Um, This is, I I think, uh, very clearly a uh, political flag that Pompeo uh, planted to try to hold the new administration's feet to the fire and try to force them not simply to go back to nuclear negotiations with Iran, but uh, to uh, at least throw facts on the table uh, that they will be forced to consider uh, as they work to re-engage with Iran. Okay. Question four. Uh, so thanks for the plug uh, for the book, but, but it's actually, it's a, it's a serious question because um, the Trump administration during his time in office really focused on state level policy. Um, it really focused on political pressure. Uh, on uh, let me start over. So that's a that's a great question, and thanks for the plug. Um, the uh, The Trump administration during its time in office really focused on state level policy, uh, and what I mean by this is that it focused on uh, applying pressure to the Iranian regime in order to politically isolate the Iranian regime and to uh, economically weaken it. Um, But the end point of that, uh, as we uh, talked about earlier, was always to try to force the current regime back to the uh, negotiating table, the nuclear negotiating table, the regional negotiating table. And as a result, there wasn't really a lot of effort that was uh, uh, paid uh, to engage with um, the Iranian opposition. Um, and there wasn't really a lot of attention uh, paid to the ferment that was taking place inside Iran. But Iran isn't a monolith. And what we've seen over the last three years or so have been consistent protests uh, that uh, essentially repudiate the regime, repudiate the regime's ideology, uh, a lot of ferment that's taking place within Iran. And it was something that the Trump administration really didn't capitalize on. Um, but that's, for my money, that's where the action is, because over the long term, Uh, The human terrain within Iran uh, is is precisely what the United States needs to focus on. Um, There's lots of opposition groups. uh, There's lots of opposition activists and actors and uh, spokespeople and really intelligent, passionate advocates uh, who, if you listen to them and you, you talk to them, and I have. Uh, they really advocate what is potentially a fundamentally different post-theocratic future for Iran. That's really a conversation that the Trump administration didn't have um, uh, during its time in office, uh, even though uh, people like the State Department's Iran uh, envoy, Brian Hook did have sporadic contacts um, with Iranian opposition elements, but it it really wasn't a sort of a a national policy to look for alternatives uh, to the current regime in Tehran. Um, But the reality is that there's a lot of there there if this is a conversation that the Biden administration wants to pursue. Um, And I for one hope that it does because Iran is politically not a monolith. Iran is a young country. Two thirds of Iran's 85 million person population are under the age of 35. Um, It doesn't make a whole lot of strategic sense to engage simply with an old Uh, aging and increasingly reviled and out-of-touch regime if you're trying to do long-term Iranian strategy. You have to account for what's happening on the Iranian street. And what you're seeing there is a lot of promise, uh, a lot of uh, of, uh, movement towards uh, more democratic principles, a lot of emphasis on human rights, a lot of emphasis on openness towards the West. And these are factors that the Biden administration can focus on and, and, and it should.